Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. And I'm going to be speaking today with Alexander Zaychik about the revelations in his new book, Owning the Sun, a people's history of monopoly medicine from aspirin to COVID-19 vaccines. And you can learn more about this book, his previous books, his many articles and so on at zaychik.com. And I'll spell that for you, Z-A-I-T-C-H-I-K, Z-A-I-T-C-H-I-K, Z-A-I-T-C-H-I-K.com. On Freeform, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at politics, economics, environment, science, health, culture, and more, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better, and I want to find out how. The show airs on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., and on kpfk.org, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Pacific. Streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on tunein.com. And podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Podomatic.com, most major podcast sites, and at my site, terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net. So it's Terrence McNally, one word, dot net. I've recently been diagnosed with a condition I'd never even heard of before, amyloidosis. My body produces and circulates. I'm going to start that again. I've recently been diagnosed with a condition I'd never even heard of before, amyloidosis. My body produces and circulates amyloids. These are misfolded proteins. And our body, uh, uh, proteins are essential to our body. So many of the, the interactions, the actions that go on inside our body are driven by proteins. But wherever these misfolded proteins go, the heart, the kidney, the nervous system, they gum up the works. Now, I'd been troubled by some stubborn atrial fibrillation since early 2020, which in my case resulted in shortness of breath after even mild exertion, like one flight of stairs, for example. And after a couple of years and a couple of mildly successful procedures to treat the AFib, my cardiologist had the insight to test me for amyloids as the underlying cause. When I looked it up online, once I'd been given the diagnosis, stuff was pretty scary. Life expectancy after diagnosis, two to five years, that sort of thing. My cardiologist referred me to another cardiologist who focuses on amyloidosis, and he assured me that my online research does not reflect the latest developments. It is now treatable, though still incurable and potentially lethal. And I've been taking an oral medication for a couple of months now, which has been shown to halt the progression of the condition. That's the good news. The bad news? The meds are obscenely expensive. The one I'm taking has a list price of $225,000 a year, and I'm going to be on medication for the rest of my life. My doctor hopes to move me to a more effective injectable treatment when clinical trials make it available for me. That one currently lists for $400,000 a year. Now, it turns out that the pharmaceutical company is supplying my meds to me free of charge. That's, again, the good news. The bad news? There are limits on my household income to qualify for this. Coming out of the pandemic, my wife and I qualify. 
But according to this program, our ability to increase our income now is severely limited. How did we get here? Not just me, but all Americans. In 2022, with farmer profits at record highs, a quarter of Americans struggled to pay for their prescription medications. One in three rationed them as a result. How can it be that medications essential to an individual's survival can be so outrageously expensive, or that private companies have created a situation in which vaccines for a global pandemic are a source of huge profits and limited availability to billions of people in the developing world. Adding profound insult to injury, we taxpayers fund a great deal of the research that leads to new pharmaceuticals, yet the government allows private companies to patent and monopolize the resulting drugs with no return to us. Owning the Sun by today's guest, Alex Zaychik, tells the story of one of the most contentious fights in human history, the legal right to produce life-saving medicines. Medical science began as a discipline geared toward the betterment of human life, but the merging of research with intellectual property and the rise of the pharmaceutical industry warped and eventually undermined those ethical foundations. Since World War II, federally funded research has facilitated most major medical breakthroughs, yet these drugs are often wholly controlled by price-gouging corporations with growing international ambitions. Why does the U.S. government fund development of medical science in the name of the public, only to relinquish exclusive rights to drug companies? And how does such a system impoverish us weaken our response to crises, and as in the case of AIDS and COVID-19, put millions to billions of lives at risk. Alexander Zaychik is a freelance journalist whose work has appeared in The Nation, The New Republic, The Intercept, The Guardian, Vice, and Rolling Stone. His books include Common Nonsense, a profile of Glenn Beck, The Gilded Rage, A Wild Ride Through Trump's America, and his latest, Owning the Sun, a people's history of monopoly medicine from aspirin to COVID-19 vaccines. Welcome, Alexander Zaychik, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Thanks for having me, Terrence. Great to be here. Let me tell listeners we're recording this conversation Wednesday, April 20th. I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas that we end up talking about. So can you tell us about your path to the work you do today, and feel free to go way back and mention mentors, turning points, moments of decision, that sort of thing. Right. Using this book as a reference, I guess the place to start would be uh, my first stories looking at uh, drug pricing and um, sort of the politics of intellectual property and, and pharmaceuticals, which dates to about 2017. Um, and I had always been kind of scared of the subject because mm -hmm. the industry has been very effective in conveying this idea that it's the most complex policy issue and the average person really shouldn't even bother trying to understand it because it is so horribly complex. Um, it's just above everyone's heads and we're just should resign ourselves to the system as it is. Um, it's a sort of intimidating policy uh, black box I think for anybody, um, including journalists, if, if you haven't spent much time in it. And then when I started to really look at the, the first story I did was about uh, the hep C drug um, that had the hep C vaccine essentially made hep C a curable disease um, that came online in, in the 2010s. And what you had here was a sort of classic situation uh, of 
of a monopoly life-saving drug being priced beyond the reach of uh, Medicaid systems, um, poor individuals, um, you know, a drug that was very cheap to produce and uh, was being priced in, in some cases in the high six figures um, or the six-figure range at least. And then it became clear once I sort of had the dimensions of it that this really wasn't so complicated at all once you stripped away the, the obfuscations. And uh, I continued to report on pharma issues and pharma-adjacent issues. Um, and then the pandemic hit. And what happened then was it became very clear that all of the issues that go into the drug pricing politics in this country and the drug pricing controversies were about to be replicated on a global scale in the context of an access issue. The same monopolies that allow the companies to run up prices on these medicines allow them to protect research and formulas from um, broad use and, and diffusion. So it was clear that uh, we were headed towards what looked to be a, a global confrontation with the problem that led to, you may remember the African AIDS crisis in the late 90s, mm -hmm. so, so where the pharmaceutical industry basically ganged up on Nelson Mandela to stop him from importing um, generic antiretrovirals in rather than you know, let a precedent be set for crossing the new WTO, they basically said, we're going to let millions of people die unnecessarily. Um, and we were facing potentially something similar with COVID. So pretty much as soon as the, the first wave hit, um, I decided to tackle this project to bring things up to owning the sun and sort of deepen my investigation of the industry, but also the history of how the industry came to be and one of the most fascinating things about the modern pharmaceutical industry that I had always noticed in, in my reporting, which I was looking forward to getting into, was how new all of this is. Mm -hmm. And the much longer history of so-called ethical medicine, ethical pharmacy, that defined not only the research and production uh, of drugs and medicines, but also their distribution and sale. Um, up until basically the 20th century, we're talking about a hundred years or less that this, what we call big pharma, uh, this hated, loathed greed monster of an industry has, has come into being. Okay. And let, let, let me, very, very good, Alex. Let me ask you though, if you could, two things. One, if you could go back before this book, since we're going to have plenty of time to talk about this book. And perhaps just a tad about how you ended up being a reporter who isn't doing local crime news, but is taking on big subjects uh -huh. um, and finding lots of freelance outlets and publishing three books. That would be the first question, sort of how, how you ended up on that path. And the second one would be, because I assume your name, at least, if people may have read some of your articles, uh, I know my listeners read a lot of those publications, um, but your name may be new. Tell us just a bit about those two previous books as well. So your, your sort of your earlier path to the work you do today and then uh, just a bit about your earlier two books. Sure. Uh, yeah, I was originally on a, uh, an academic path mm. after um, school. I went pretty much right to grad school and uh, I was in history program, history slash international relations, doing um, diplomatic history and 
uh, some IR theory, and I was also writing for local alternative newspapers. Um, in college, I'd started a, a, a zine, just sort of a hand-stapled kind of thing, and I never stopped writing, uh, even while I was in my second year of, of graduate study. And then one day I woke up and I realized that you know I was having more impact with these hand-distributed articles in my community than I was with these term papers that I was spending <laughs> months writing, and they were literally just sitting on a stack in one guy's office who could care less <laughs> about what was in there. And it just occurred to me that if I was going to spend my life writing, I might as well write things that will actually be read. Yeah. Uh, so I dropped out, and I uh, moved to Eastern Europe, and uh, I spent much of the mid-late 90s basically writing about you know a lot of the stuff that's now on the front page, sure. uh, NATO expansion, sort of post-Soviet development and, um, you know, relations between the countries in that region and spent some time in the Balkans covering those wars, Kosovo, etc. Let me, let me and, jump in for a second. One, I'm really glad I asked that because that moment of realizing that your zines were more impactful than, <laughs> than your academic research is just a great moment, I think, that people c can imagine. Um, but what what prompted you to move to Eastern Europe at the you know after dropping out? Well, I didn't have a lot of money for one, mm -hmm. um, and at the time it was possible to get a you know a teaching job with you know a handshake and a, a photocopy ah. and a high school diploma. Um, so I needed work, and two, it was also where sort of history was happening in right the world. at that moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah this was ninety seven. Mm -hmm. Very good. Um, Very good. So it seemed like a, a logical place for different reasons. And before long, I had um, you know, started writing for the local English language press and um, you know, was freelancing for the International Herald Tribune a little bit, stuff like that. Um, and it all kind of came together. And then I returned to the States in 2003 to edit the New York Press, which was an alt-weekly that competed with the Village Voice and is sadly no longer around. Yeah, well, I mean, we know the, 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 the fate of the alt-press was pretty much determined by the internet. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as so we know, would... the fate of the conventional press has been, in, you know, uh, ridiculously impacted. Yeah. Um, but the alt press really took it because classifieds uh, went online instead of in the back of your uh, alternative newspaper. Yeah, I was there. I had a front row seat for that Craigslist decimation. It's hard to believe that I, I was alive for it. But when, when I first arrived at the New York Press, we were publishing 150 pages a week wow. with just you know half of that was classified ads. sure and then we had a movie section that was you know just bursting with theater ads and you know i remember the last time i picked up a village voice it was like a sears circular it was like eight pages with yeah. with no movie ads i just didn't even know what planet i was on yeah it's funny i remember when uh the la weekly which was the which i guess still exists i just don't see it anymore but I remember picking up the first issue, which was eight pages. Oh, well. Right? Mm -hmm. And then it grew and grew and grew to be about what you were talking about with the New York press. And then it shrunk to where it's probably back to what it was when it emerged, if, yeah. if, it, if at all. Um, okay. So tell us a bit about those first two books. Sure. Um, I was uh, writing for Alternet.org in about 2009 when uh, the Tea Party started to stir uh, right after Obama's election. And I got a, a phone call from an editor in New Jersey, um, Wiley and Sons in Hoboken. Mm -hmm. and it was just kind of one of these weird, uh, fortuitous things where we had lunch and basically just 
wrote out a contract on a napkin. He wanted a book about Glenn Beck, and I said okay. And uh, next thing I knew, I was on a plane to Tampa where Beck started his career, and I ended up um, spending a year there writing the book, uh, just researching mostly his his old AM radio days, and then also commenting on the on his more recent incarnations at night. But during the days, I was focused on writing a, what I tried to make was a, a comprehensive biography, which I thought was as interesting as the Tea Party analysis because he was sort of there at the creation of this zoo format, wild guy, AM radio revolution, um, and was notorious within that. So I thought that was an interesting story to tell. What's, what's, what's his status these days? I mean, he went from being everywhere to then seemingly, you know, to, to most people nowhere. What, what, is, what is actually going on with Glenn Beck these days? I don't follow him anywhere near as yeah. closely as I used to, but as I understand it, he's basically settled into a very niche sort of, you know, media role. He has his own his own little empire with a with a loyal fan base. So he's he, he's kind of become a subscription kind of thing. Oh yeah, yeah. To he a has small but I'm sure lucrative niche. That is that are his subscribers and subscribe to his media and his philosophy. <laughs> yes, and he's he's drawn down his ambitions in terms of being an impresario. I mean, he used to hold all these live events. He was constantly just spinning out new ideas and was publishing three books a year. I mean, he's he's scaled down, and now I think he just has this little subscription-based mm-hmm. TV empire. Um, but you know, he'll still pop up on like some of the Fox shows yeah. every once in a while. But mo- for the most part, um, he's not really a, yeah. a, 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 a in a way. A, a comet who yeah who, who flared for a few years and 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 has yeah he briefly tried to carve out a niche as an anti-trump conservative but he saw which way the wind was blowing yeah it didn't last long yeah that would that wouldn't help your subscriptions actually no, no. <laughs> okay and the other book gilded rage yeah that, that that was another weird story i was writing a story about the militia movement in michigan mm-hmm. and um it wasn't going very well. <laughs> I was getting very little access. My undercover work was was not very impressive, and uh, the the Trump primary was starting to gain speed. And I went to some of those events, and I realized, my God, like this guy, something's happening here. Yeah. And I wrote my publishers of like, I know this is going to be a radical departure, but can we switch tracks and, and let me do a, a a Trump primary campaign trail book? And uh, he said, go for it. So I, I did like a Studs Terkel style approach of just sort of long form interviews of Trump supporters because the media was just, you know, they weren't doing a good job of trying to capture what was taking place. Um, they were just, you know, doing all these leading, you know, capsule interviews. Mm-hmm. So I s- s- figured I'd take the long form approach and see if that illuminated things any better. Well, how um, do you, uh, I mean, I, I didn't even realize exactly what that book was. How does it stand up for you today? I think it's an interesting read, even aside from what it may explain about the Trump phenomenon. And I do think it has some explanatory power. But uh, anytime you go to a place and just dig into what life is like there, you know, everyone yeah. talks about, oh, this used to be a factory town and now there's no jobs. But instead of a statistic, you actually talk to John Smith and yeah. he talks about generations of his life in this place. Or, or, you know, coal country, West Virginia, or the border in California or Arizona. That, those are the places I went to, the places that seemed emblematic mm-hmm. of the Trump campaign. Um, I went to coal country, the border, and Rust Belt places uh, in six states. And everybody there that I uh, spoke to at length was just full of fascinating 
colorful American history, like micro history mm-hmm. that had, I think, explanatory power um, that was much more useful than what you were getting on these, you know, cable news roundups right. of what was really going on. Yeah, no, th- those, those, those books, I mean, I would sort of say I, I, strangers in their own land and, and, and maybe, maybe tightrope and so, so on. I, I find, I mean, I will, I will definitely look into that book because I... Yeah, Strangers in Their Own Land kind of took all my oxygen, and deservedly so. That's a great book. Uh, but it was a similar approach. But whereas she spent years in one community, I had six months to do six dates. So it wasn't yeah. quite as... Yeah. But, but no, I'm saying I, I'm, going to, I'm going to look up that other book of yours because I find that stuff very, uh, A, I love narrative, and, yeah. and that's what you get, you know, you, yeah. from these people is you get, you don't get uh, cliff notes, you, you get narrative. Right, and sometimes it, they'll surprise you. I mean, I, I, a lot of these people, one of the things, one of the recurring themes that I got from that book that I, you know, tried to stress in, in interviews, including... Um, on MSNBC, which didn't go over so well, uh, was the fact that these people were not always, you know, cartoon racists, and that there was a lot of overlap with a lot of the things you would hear from the other insurgent campaign, which was which was the Bernie Sanders side, exactly where I was coming from. And um, some people really did not want to hear that. They just wanted to say, no, this whole economic anxiety thing is ridiculous. These, these are just yahoos. And yeah, there were some yahoos. I talked to them. They're in the book, too. But, um, you know, for the most part, it was a lot more nuanced. And there was a lot more to wrestle with if you're serious about changing American politics. Right. And if you're cha- serious about changing America. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, one thing that you said er- earlier uh, when you were talking about... Um, this book, and you mentioned how health medicine, the health industry, the politics of it, and so on, is purposely obscure so that most of us pay little attention to it. One thing that I've felt over the years is that medicine and health, finance and law are three things which really impact all of us you know, in such a fundamental way. And in all of them, the language, the everything is made so as we sort of, uh, laymen are expected to leave it alone and leave it to the experts and, and, and with a purposeful obscurantism that, that, uh, that makes us all, I think, a little less able to, to deal with life. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot of truth to that, absolutely. Uh, and the industry does it on both ends. On the one hand, they say it's, it's enormously complex and they throw data, bogus science everywhere. And on the other hand, they have this very blunt instrument, this very effective, uh, blunt propaganda instrument, which is basically the refrain, if you want medical advance, you have to give us these insane profits or we will not produce anything and everyone you know will die. <laughs> That's basically it. Um, how did you choose your approach to the book? And by that, uh, we're talking here about uh, Owning the Sun, um, that it is such a history. Right. Well, I mean, it's an old truism. If you want to tell a story, well, just start at the beginning. <laughs> okay. So I... Basically, you know, this was a pandemic project. I was stuck at home. 
uh, didn't have access to libraries or archives. So I went on, you know, used book sites and I ordered everything I could on the history of medicine. And I started with the origins of medicine. Uh, and from there, I sort of crawled my way through the chronology up to the point where there were archives of journals online. Um, and, you know, there's a literature out there of, of the history of medical ethics and the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and a lot of this work is great. Um, most of it in recent years has been produced, but it's also very compartmentalized and academic. Mm -hmm. So what I tried to do was synthesize all of this great research and put it together in a sort of, you know, with a nod to Zinn's book, which was a similar thing. Yes. Um, call it a people's history in which, you know, people who aren't going to be spending two years of their life going through academic journals can, can basically get the, uh, the gist uh, in a couple hundred pages. But yeah, it starts at the beginning with the origins of medicine and then takes it up to the intersection with capitalism. Yeah, and, let, me, let me even jump yeah. in because one of the things that jumped out at me, and, and when Alex says he started at the beginning, he really means the beginning, was your point about Asclepius being perceived by the early Christians as the greatest competition for Jesus Christ. Just tell that anecdote so people get a sense of the, the beginnings of all of this. So yeah, in the ancient cultures, religion and medicine were very much entwined, um, and there was usually a, a healing god. And the, the Greek god, which was later you know, a Roman god and persisted for, for quite some time uh, in the West, was Asclepius. And when Christ was making his ascent and his disciples were trying to spread the word of his true, you know, <laughs> uh, savior role, um, people were like, but we already have a, a healing God that our, you know, ancestors have found effective. Um, and Christ basically, that's where the, the healing, um, you know, prong of that uh, cell uh, comes from because it wasn't enough to just be the son of a god um, or a savior or, or promising some heaven that didn't really otherwise exist in, in people's minds yet. What did exist was the idea of, of a healer. Um, so that was amplified and ultimately what allowed him to gain traction and uh, overtake Asclepius. I mean, I just love that. And, and of course, we're talking about, uh, we're, we're starting here with the Greeks, but of course, if you look at indigenous cultures, the shaman, the healer, is you know is is often the most powerful figure in in any any uh, tribe or village or whatever. Um, but this notion that uh, the gospels better include a few miracles if you're gonna win, yes. <laughs> win over those folks, I thought was just such an interesting anecdote. Okay, let's move forward then. Um, you basically talk about the history of patents. That's another of your foundational things. And so I'm going to ask you a couple of things, or I'm going to frame it and then, then ask you to go. One is that you, you talk about in, in the Enlightenment, thinking about inventions is not the work of a lone genius, but of a flowering along a path, a long path of discovery in which no single individual is the uh, is the source? The source is this uh, this continuum. So that's one thing. And then there's also a little mention in the Constitution of of patents. So if you could talk about that, the early history of patents. Yep. 
Well, you're absolutely right that that was the Enlightenment view, and that was also the ancient view, and it was the Christian, the medieval Christian view. It was a very long tradition to understand knowledge as a trans-historical, trans-generational project, which is intuitive, right? Because that's how <laughs> knowledge compounds. We were handed things from our predecessors and we build on them. Like Isaac Newton famously said, if I see farther, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. That was just accepted. Um, so the idea that somebody could come along and say, no, this is mine alone. I invented this was a novel concept. Inventors' rights cut against thousands of years of how human beings had thought about progress and scientific advance and knowledge generally. So why did people accede to inventors' rights? And this comes to the first real sort of turning point mm -hmm. in the story. And the key to thinking about patents, I think, the origins of patents, is to remember that they are basically an exception. They are a carve-out to a general ban on monopoly. It was basically decided in Elizabethan England that monopoly power, as exercised by the crown, had gone too far. It was time to rein it in. Monopolies should be abolished because they're just it's just ripe for abuse. And it's also wreaking havoc with the economy. So we're going to ban monopolies. But there was an exception made for inventors' rights. And the exception was made on the belief that, one, it would spur uh, innovation by incentivizing creativity, which was very debatable. Even <laughs> then. On, yeah, even then, because as we said, the history shows that things somehow move forward um, by collective uh, you know, generation to generation. That, 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 that notion that at this point with the accumulated knowledge and experience, if you didn't invent it, someone probably would soon. Yes, there, there's a general flowering taking place on this path all over, and there always will be. You don't need the incentive of uh, monopoly profits to have progress. But that was the argument that was made because uh, at the time in England with enclosure, there were a lot of poor people, there, were a lot of, there was a lot of unrest, and the Queen and then King James basically said, look, we want to encourage inventors from you know, other parts of Europe to come here and share their knowledge and help us develop trades, and it will develop the economy. So it was used as an incentive to bring people to England, as well as to incentivize clever tinkerers and inventors in England. But it was very limited. It was very limited. It was limited to 14 years, which amount of time it was assumed was needed to trade two sets of apprentices. And then the knowledge was just spread. It was open. Anybody could use it. That was the deal. You got 14 years to rack up your profits, and then everybody had access. And the apprentices would spread out around the kingdom. And the patent would contain all the information needed to use the invention and the knowledge. Everything was in the patent. It was an open, it was like a promissory note. The government kept it as a, as a promissory note. So you, while you're making your profits, we're holding on to this knowledge and then we're just going to spill it. That's important to keep in mind when we yes. get to the modern industry because that is no longer what's happening. That's right. That was the deal. That was the original patent deal. So inventors' rights are very sort of controversial into the Enlightenment, which was your second question. 
right? Well, no, my second one was how it appears in the Constitution. So we've, right. we, we've originated in England, and now in this breakaway colony, how do they yes. treat it? So the colonies pretty much inherited a lot of English common law. And the British patent system was, was part of that inheritance. And when it came time to write the Constitution, there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm for codifying it at the federal level. Like the states had their own versions of uh, inventors' rights. But when it came to the Constitutional Convention, it was basically just James Madison mm -hmm. uh, and Pinckney, two, the two Southerners, who really pushed uh, for inventors' rights in the Constitution. But notably, the two greatest inventors and scientists and thinkers at the convention, or not at the convention, but one of them you know, observing from France and the other one present in his native Philadelphia, Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, were against it. Yep. They were deeply suspicious of this idea that uh, foreclosing the spread of knowledge even for 14 years would somehow spur uh, innovation. They thought the opposite would take place. And by setting that precedent, uh, you were opening the door to greater evils. And they turned out to be pretty um, far-seeing in terms of, of pharmaceuticals, it turned out. Yeah. Let me break in for a second tell people this is Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally. I'm speaking with Alexander Zaitchik about the revelations in his new book, Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19 Vaccines. You can learn more at his website, zaitchik.com. That's Z-A-I-T. C-H-I-K, one word, Z-A-I-T-C-H-I-K.com. Okay, continue. So there was skepticism, a lot, deep skepticism or uh, apathy at the convention that intellectual property deserved the same treatment as physical property in this new constitution. Right, as you say, if I eat your cow, you are deprived of it. If I use your idea, you're still free to do whatever you want with it. Yeah, or in Jefferson's much more um, elegant formulation, he who receives an idea from me receives instruction himself without lessening mine, mm. as he who lights his taper at mine receives light without darkening me. Mm-hmm. Very good. Now, that was also the view of the architects of what we consider capitalism. John Locke, Adam Smith, they were also skeptical of this idea of intellectual property. They kind of ended up going along with it, but they were never really sold on it. So this was not an idea that had a lot of enthusiastic supporters for the most part. And that includes in, in the early United States. And it was also against the ethos of the early United States in terms of giving any kind of special economic rights to any person or entity because it was seen as a little bit too close to the corporations and the monopolies that abused the colonies. And uh, it really had to overcome um, a lot of sort of, I don't know if you use the term grassroots for back then, but uh, it was, it was, it was counter, counter ethos um, mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. early 19th century up until, um, well, that there's an asterisk there that's worth mentioning. There were still a lot of inventors in the early United States who did submit patent applications to the U.S. Patent Office. You can't say everyone was against corporations and, and patent rights, but 
most people were, um, even as thousands of Americans submitted applications for, for patent rights on their inventions, mostly related to agricultural mm -hmm. products or processes. Okay, let's uh, jump a little bit ahead. A point that you've mentioned, but which was a surprise to me, I think, um, was that medicine and health were for a long time treated as exceptions or holdouts when it came to patents and secrecy. So kind of lay that out just a bit, and then when did that begin and how did that begin to break down? Yeah, so if we think about the patent as a carve-out for a general ban on monopoly, medicines were a carve-out within the carve-out of inventors' rights. Inventors' rights could basically be applied to everything except products related to health and nutrition. And that was because there was an even deeper civilizational tradition that was part of this old idea of knowledge, where by medical knowledge in particular was almost sacred. And it was so important and so crucial, because there wasn't a lot of it for so long, to share it that the idea that you would try to squat it and, and limit it access for personal gain was so outrageous, it was just not allowed into the patent paradigm until about the turn of the 20th century. You start to have these debates, which we can get into, but it was considered beyond the pale because the ethical codes of medicine mm -hmm. and medical research were based on these ancient ideas of universal knowledge. This is a product of, of all the civilizational research and it should benefit all mankind. Because remember, you know, up until the mid 19th century, you had waking surgery, yeah. you had leeching. Yeah. So if somebody actually invented something to make life less of a nightmare and yeah. extend it, the idea that you were gonna monopolize it f to become rich I mean, you were basically put on a rail. Yeah. Yeah. Or you were, or you were completely dismissed as a charlatan and a fraud. Right. That was the thing I was going to say is that there's that transitional period where the very term patent medicine is an insult. It was a synonym for fraud or charlatan. It, those were not scientific medicines. Those were basically uh, snake oils. Yeah. And it was a synonym for snake oil to be a, a patent medicine uh, huckster. In other words, those folks who actually went to the trouble to get a patent on their branded uh, little liver pills or whatever, um, and P.T. Barnum was in the business and so on, they were in it for the money and not for the, the common good and were, you know, uh, treated as such. Yeah, they were also notably called patent um, medicine dealers, even if they didn't seek a patent. If they, if they sought to uh, keep secrecy over their mm -hmm. invention. That anything that, that hinted of um, personal gain over public good, they just, the catch-all was patent medicine. And the point, at you, you point out, I think, that the Germans are the first ones who break kind of with this, uh, this ethos and begin to patent things. And how, uh, and then we don't have time, but I recommend the book, to go through the history of how cracks show up and, and 
that the role of Estes Kefauver in, in and his hearings, the role of of heroic uh, people who fight this, and then uh, let me say equally talented people who promote it and how it eventually wins. And one thing that I saw in that evolution, we're talking uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, was that what was going on in pharmaceuticals and medicine was parallel to what was going on in all of society, it seems to me. That, yes. Uh, so, so do kind of a brief highlight of that so that we can get uh, we, we, we have time in our remaining 15 minutes to get to the recent and the present. So you're talking about this sort of neoliberal shift that happened in the, the latter decades of the 20s across the West. Yeah. Right. Well, that was very much a U.S.-led project when it comes to medical monopolies. Because while there was a sort of broad uh, neoliberal shift, the Europeans, Japan, Canada, these countries were dragged very reluctantly to the system we have now with the WTO and the TRIPS regime. Uh, they were adhering to the old ethics of non-monopoly medicine up until, in many cases, the 1970s in their own legal systems. Switzerland did not issue drug patents until the 70s. Spain until the early 90s, I think. I mean, this was a very recent turn for them, and, and it was a Washington-led process. If it, if it hadn't been for uh, the Pfizer executives uh, and the Clinton administration, which empowered them, and the Reagan and Bush administrations before them, it's unlikely we would have seen uh, drug monopolies put at the forefront of the, um, the WTO round leading, the, the Uruguay round of GATT, rather, that led to the founding of the WTO in 94 with, with drug monopolies. And, and just briefly, if you could, um, the development of the WTO, it was developed to fill what was perceived by uh, the corporate world as, as a gap, um, and what was, what was that hole that the WTO was created to fill? Well, it, in terms of the book story about intellectual property, there was no intellectual property regime. It was basically patents ended at national borders for the mm. most part, and that was definitely true with medicines. Mm -hmm. Countries were aghast at the idea of having to recognize an American patent when the science is easily copied and that drugs could be made cheaply to save lives in many cases uh, in poor countries America remembers you know uniquely rich in most of uh, the uh, member states of the United Nations are not so the idea that suddenly they would be forced to recognize US issued patents uh, on, on medicines life-saving medicines was just uh, you know it was a shocking idea and that was the gap that was being filled. It was something that most people thought would uh, never be filled. And within a space of about 20 years, it went from being a complete outlier of an idea to uh, the new global system, which was you know, put into place at the absolute pinnacle of that, what they used to call the you know, U.S.'s uh, unipolar moment. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, right. In other words, the uh, Soviet Union falls in uh, 8990 
and Seattle is 99. And it is that decade between those two that this uh, shift happens. Yeah, and the, the lack of uh, Soviet support for a lot of countries left countries that were at the forefront of opposing uh, the TRIPS regime you know, at the mercy of Washington, which had recently granted them access to their markets. The Western countries had only recently given a lot of um, uh, poor countries access to their markets for agriculture and textile goods. So now they were saying, we're going to take all that away unless you sign on the dotted line and start recognizing drug patents. It was, it was a very um, brutal interrogation that led to uh, the signing of, of, of the TRIPS Accord. Um, and, and a lot of this, uh, in, as I said, 40s, 50s, 60s, is driven by Republicans. But the Democratic Leadership Council Democrats, Birch Bayh, Bill Clinton, Al Gore and others, uh, Lieberman, those folks, they really uh, change the game. They're no longer it's no longer a Republican uh, uh, drive. It's 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 both parties. Yeah, yeah. The New Deal tradition, the New Deal position on public science, uh, and making sure that medical science, in particular, stayed under public control, was a victim of the sort of '70s shift within the party, with the rise of you know the Bill Clintons and and, and Rich By coming in, and of course his name is on the landmark piece of legislation that overturned the the New Deal order. Um, which is a little weighty. We don't have to get into it. Um, but yeah, Birch Bayh was from the home state of Eli Lilly and basically adopted the industry line and, and rejected what had been the longstanding democratic position of um, default public ownership of inventions funded by the federal government. And his bill uh, by Dole essentially flipped that so that um, outside contractors could claim those inventions at first universities and small biotechs and then eventually large pharmaceutical companies uh, starting in 1983. Right. But that interesting point you just made, which is that originally the carve out was for small companies and universities. Uh, that was the camel's nose under the tent, right? Yes. Well uh, said. Just as the patents originally limited to so many years and so many limitations was the same thing. I mean, I, I'm often one who is skeptical of slippery slopes, but in these two cases, it, it absolutely was the case. Um, yeah. And one of the, one of the I, I will make it very, very quick, but one of the points that it seems to me is when uh, political campaigns became based on television advertising, and the price of a political campaign skyrocketed. The Democrats of these of this ilk said, "Oh, if I'm going to get enough money to compete in this space, I'm going to have to become uh, my funders are going to have to become the same funders as the Republican funders." And uh, and and then we get the Democratic Leadership Council and the kind of things you're talking about. Uh, briefly, the role of universities who, as you said, in the original uh, carve-out, it, it was thought that, that, or it was even set up so that universities would be, be the beneficiaries. Research universities had their own ethics, which have gone by the by. Yeah. And the reputation for those ethics was something of an anachronism by the time they got behind uh, the Bayh-Dole Act. One of, one of the articles that I talk about in the book is, is called the the halo of Baidol, which was provided by the universities because people thought that they represented this yep. older ethical order. But in fact, 
the patent offices of, of major research universities have long been allied for at least 50 years now with side-by-side side with the pharmaceutical and biotech lobbies. They have the same interests because they both want monopolies to license out and reap the profits to build basketball stadiums or whatever the regions have on their shopping lists. But yeah, the university patent lobby is as disgusting as Big Pharma. And and what's also shifted in that time was that the, where the uh, research universities, especially the public ones, got a great deal of their funding from the public that has shifted greatly to where now they are reliant on corporate funding or corporate-friendly foundation funding. And so that process, which was already in process, has just uh, solidified enormously. I wouldn't overplay um, that. They're still overwhelmingly reliant on NIH grants for uh, basic research especially. Um, That's still by far the biggest R&D outlay in the whole system. Um, pushing $50 billion a year. Let's jump to that one. That goes back to the question that I raised, which is one of the questions that this book uh, raises and, and, and attempts to answer, is why in the world, when the government does the at least the basic research and often more than that, or funds it, um, why do they give away to corporations? Why don't they at least hold some percentage for the public what what that's the thing that sort of drives i would think anyone who hears about it the craziest it's maddening i mean none of these companies who are walking away with the rights would allow themselves to be fleeced in the way that the government allows itself to be fleeced in a systemic way by producing all of this knowledge and just putting it on a conveyor belt with no shop rights attached to it. And there are clauses within U.S. law and the relevant legislation that allow the U.S. to retroactively make those claims. And there's a piece, uh, there's a petition on Biden's desk right now to do that for a prostate cancer drug that was invented by the U.S. Army, um, U.S. Army funds. But it's not being acted on, which gets to your question, why? Uh, it's really hard to avoid the, the C word, capture. I mean, the administration it has a good person at HHS. They've got some good antitrust people uh, in key positions, but you've also got you know, a lot of high and mid-level administration people who are in that rotating door with yes. uh, pharma and their, their lobby chops. And there's a, they're clearly the ones winning whatever internal discussion is taking place within the administration. Uh, and usually there's not even a discussion taking place. So I, I guess that's some sort of progress. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's just the, the industry has the biggest um, lobbying operation of all industries. It's, we don't even know how much they're spending. We just have you know, what, what's reported. But the money that's flowing at all levels is just staggering hundreds of millions of dollars, it's probably more than a billion altogether. All I mean, it's not just the, the and, lobby visits, it's these patient groups. And we're talking for a year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. That, that, that one thing you mentioned, I, 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 the last thing I want you to talk about is going to be sort of COVID and, and where that, how that has played out and where that stands and the role of Bill Gates, perhaps. But the, the one thing I want you to put, shed just a little bit more light on is that there is in, it's, it's in the Biden, 
Dole law, isn't it? That there's this thing where the government has the right to change the rules or change the relationship if the uh, if the, the, the pharmaceutical is not being given at a reasonable, accessible kind of price. Is that correct? There's, there's a reasonable uh, access clause in um, by Dole. There's also uh, 1498 in the U.S. Code. Uh, there's also just uh, sovereign power in the Constitution. I mean, the, the government can do what it wants with uh, a patent system that is a creation of the government. And, you know, the government was the one who tendered these contracts and these grants. It could have been just written into warp speed. You want these $8 billion? Here are going to be the uh, price uh, requirements. Here's going to be some sort of tech transfer requirements. You're going to have to share it with the WHO CTAP initiative. You're going to have to provide training and know-how to the Global South. Any number of things could have been put into these contracts. Uh, But this is something people forget. When liberal lawmakers, Lloyd Doggett and others, tried to insert some sort of basic social constraints on that warp speed money, the industry had a very clear response. They said, don't even think about it. If you try to do this, we will take the ball and we will go home. That's how much they care about this global public health emergency. That's in the face of a global pandemic. Yes. And that's always been their response. They didn't really do anything with HIV AIDS either. That's right. They were like, this has got stigma, it's going to be expensive, we don't care. Until it was worth a lot and then they spent all their money trying to stop. And as you uh, point out, AZT, at, at its, at, when AZT came out, it was the most expensive drug uh, treatment ever created. After it was rediscovered and developed and trialed by the National Cancer Institute. Yes, of course. Yep. And, 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 and the other thing that's uh, was, was shocking to me was I think that was 1987 and it was under 15,000 a year. And what I mentioned in the introduction about medication I'm now taking is, you know, in, I mean, the inflation in the ceiling is beyond belief. Yeah. So if I give you two or three minutes to sort of say what you haven't been able to say, what listeners should read, learn, do, take it away. Well, the, one of the frustrating things about drug politics in this country is you can't really get people more angry than they already are and more <laughs> aligned with each other across party lines. I mean, you have something like 90, uh, some polls show 90 plus percent across party lines in support of serious drug reform, including giving the government the right to negotiate prices for the Medicare formulary. How do you, if that can't translate into action by a Democratic president with control of the Senate and the House, I mean, Bernie Sanders said it best. It's like, how do you, at some point, there's nothing you can say to make people think there's any point in anything. Like, democracy is going to, You cannot argue that democracy means anything if you can't even get moderate drug pricing reform with 90% of the public supporting it. 
Right. And let me just jump in quickly to say, so we've got enormous support across party lines and we've got something which is essential to life. This is not a peripheral issue. Yes, it touches everybody. And now it was in Build Back Better, right? There is a drug reform plank within Build Back Better, which is a compromise of a compromise. Sure. The the original bill um, that uh, bore the name of... um, Oh, geez, I'm blanking. Um, oh, one second. Don't worry Sorry. about it. Sorry. Yeah, the original bill was much more muscular. Um, I have a piece in New York Magazine, if anyone's interested, called This is How Pharma Wins, um, or This is How the Drug Companies Win, that goes into this in some detail. Uh, but, you know, it's a start. It's it's like a few dozen drugs that can be negotiated, right. Right. but it's not nearly enough, and it really lets the, the companies off the hook. Um, in a way that they shouldn't be anymore. And that was too much for Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin. Actually, Joe Manchin supports stronger reforms. He's, oh. he's interesting. It's the one case where Joe Manchin is ahead of, uh, of uh, people in the party. So Sinema that one really came down to Kristen Sinema? Yeah. Wow. In a, in, a, in a state with a lot of seniors who need those medications and need Medicare to be able to negotiate. Yeah, but we don't want to let other Democrats off the hook. There's a lot of Democrats who are kind of uh, warm. Pr- protecting themselves behind, yeah. you know, th- it's all her fault. Right. Um, and it's a very uh, farmed up Democratic Party right now. And okay. that, there are signs that that is changing. Um, but, you know, it, it don't, let's not kid ourselves. There's still a lot of very powerful Democrats who are happy with the status quo and are terrified of, of pushing too hard. Okay. So here we are. Your book provides the history up to now. We've got, as you point out, 90%, and the Republicans may take over, you know, may very well take over Congress in, in uh, th- this fall's elections. Where do we go? That's, a, that's the big question. I mean, to the extent that people are organized, keep pushing, and to the extent that they're not, um, get involved in one of the groups uh, that, are, that are active on this. You know, uh, and don't, you know, if you're watching TV and you see a, uh, a patient advocacy group going after your liberal representative saying that, you know, the, the Build Back Better reform is going to lead to a, a stopping of all innovation in the future, uh, wonder who's paying for that ad. It's not a patient advocacy group. It's, it's most likely pharma that's actually putting up the money. Um, just be extremely skeptical of any industry claims and and always remember that for thousands of years we yeah. moved the chains forward without anyone becoming a billionaire during a pandemic. Very good. So again, the book is Owning the Sun, a people's history of monopoly medicine from aspirin to COVID-19 vaccines. You can learn more at zaitchik.com. That's Z-A-I-T-C-H-I-K.com. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net, or a world that just might work.com. They're the same website. If you want to receive my weekly email announcement telling you who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and usually eight or 10 articles to flesh out the conversation, email me at T-E McNally, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, at mac.com. Uh, or you can also sign up at my site. Um, you can su- subscribe and listen to the uh, Freeform podcast on Apple Podcasts and most major podcast sites. You can find years of podcasts at my site or those sites. 
um, Bill McKibben, Michael Lewis, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, George Packer. You can also follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence. Thanks to Kiana Williams in production, George Vassilopoulos of Progressive Voices, and most of all to you, my listeners. Please share this podcast widely. And finally, thank you, Alexander Zaychik, and keep up your good work. Thanks so much, Terrence. Thank you.